Chapter Nine. Anywhere out of the world. Constable Jebediah, or Jeb, if you prefer, is an unsung poet. Most people cannot see beyond his sour look of constipation, or the fact that he glares at people like he's deciding between killing you or just beating you stupid. When Jeb speaks, there is a special music that most people just don't hear. Poetry of a dark soul, like Baudelaire or Ginsberg. Just this morning, okay, it was four in the morning. He and Constable David were in the middle of an argument about whose turn it was to take watch on the roof. Dave was taking the low-stress, rational approach to the conversation by referencing, you know, facts, when Jeb's muse punched him in the testicles. From deep within his tortured, artistic soul, he invited David to go fuck yourself in the neck with a bread knife. I add this to my little notebook of Jeb-isms alongside his classic, I've killed bigger shits than you, which makes me wonder if Jeb lives on a diet of giant mutant cockroaches. I've fucked bigger shits than you, which breaks my brain trying to figure it out. Go cry the sand out of your vagina. Usually directed at David or Krantz. Your dumbass ain't worth a quart of taint sauce. And I wouldn't stab you in the ass with my sister's dick. That last one would be a tasty study for both my favorite literature professor and my abnormal psych prof. The juxtaposition of sexual organs and implements of violence is a common theme in Jeb's poetry, as is the weird mashup of old standard insults. If I wasn't so afraid of being stabbed by his genitals or fucked by his cutlery, I might ask him about his literary influences. Perhaps Bukowski or Baudelaire. Maybe he's like some lost David Mame character that just wandered off a Chicago stage and into our world. That's Jeb. If he had any sense of charity or decency, it was scrubbed clean from him long ago. But his art remains. Jeb was already here at Site 2210, also known as HG World, when I arrived. I hear that another bus picked him up alongside the road, injured, wandering in circles and muttering to himself. Some versions of the story have him carrying the scalps of some eaters in his fists. Sometimes he runs out in front of the bus like the Hulk, but without pants. Though I think Krantz just made that one up to piss Jeb off. No one messes with Jeb to his face except the mayor, manager Jack, and, of course, Harris. Everyone else treats him like an oncoming storm or a boulder on the trail. They prepare for and work around him. The constables here are not police. They're more like mall cops mixed with camp counselors. We have rules, and they make sure the hundred and few odd dozen folks in here follow them. They mediate problems between residents, we don't use the word refugee, and try to keep things from getting out of hand to the point that the mayor or manager Jack have to get involved. Most disputes are about petty theft or just flaring tempers. 
sometimes there are bigger issues, like a fight between some teenagers that turned ugly with a box cutter. Those bad seeds disappeared upstairs into the offices for a few days and came back model citizens. Oh, yeah. There's a lockup room here in what used to be the cash control room. If you really piss off a constable, or just look at Jeb the wrong way, you may end up there for a few hours and get a lecture from our human resource counselor, Jenny Joe or Regina. Pardon my Middle English Saxon, but those bitches are fucked up. More on them later. As for the constables, they are a diverse group, I'll say that. If Constable David is wandering the floors, he'll chat with people and find out what's going on in the stacks. He'll joke around, take notes on things people need or that need fixed. He'll network and do some trading here and there. Cigarettes and cold medicine here and there. A nice young guy who should be back in school with me instead of wearing a constable's red apron wandering a prison town. He seems content with his situation here. Doesn't talk about the world before or complain about anything but the long night shifts that he volunteers for. He lives in the little cabin he built up on the roof. It was supposed to be a shelter for guards to use in bad weather, but David somehow managed to keep it for himself. Constable Krantz is a glass bottle of anxious. He's a skinny guy with big hands, thick kinky hair, which I love, and a face that reminds me of Beaker from the Muppets. I mean that in a good way. I like talking to him about books and TV shows. He has a way of making people forget that all those little things like TV and movies, music and books are all gone forever. In public, he's quiet and likes to spend time around women and girls. He's a shy one, but doesn't realize what a smooth talker he is. He and I have the same taste in women, it turns out. Funny. Constable Harris looks like Thor, god of thunder. I'm told he used to be a professional wrestler. He's married to a pretty, earthy granola type named Ellen, and they have a cute little boy named Zeke. I met them on the road in the middle bus that saved our lives. Specifically, I met Harris as he snapped my nose back into shape. If this helps, I'll let you punch me. But this is going to hurt. A lot. Those were Harris's first words to me. I heard the words, but I was thinking about these giant, rough face-hugger hands cupping the side of my head and two thumbs pressing against the sides of each nostril, which felt like someone grafted a fat, wet clown nose to my central nervous system. It was the pain of Harris even touching it that brought me back to the world, but the burning electric shock of the sudden snap had me using words that would make Jeb blush. And I did punch Harris. I punched him in the chest, which was as useful as punching a leather sofa. But I felt better, and he didn't seem to mind. Better? He asked me. 
I wanted to say something mean to him about his leathery tan face and all the scars around his forehead and cheeks, like someone pushed Fabio's face into a belt sander as a cheap way of giving him a facelift. He looked like he'd had his own nose busted up a few times himself. But he had gentle, blue eyes that you couldn't stay mad at very long, especially as the painkillers they shot into my arm took effect. Harris helped me over to where his wife, Alan, and son, Zeke, were sitting. My sergeant had to help clear a path up the aisle where people had been huddled and hiding from the things they witnessed out the windows. Harris and Ellen shared a moment of that unspoken psychic conversation you only find in older married couples, and she understood that she was to keep an eye on my goofed-up, loopy self on top of her little boy. She didn't seem to mind— and tried her best to project a look of sympathy and optimism, hiding a worried, exhausted mother in desperate need of some sleep and a pack of cigarettes. Granola, Marlboros, a Harley and light beer in a tall can. That's what I thought of when I met Ellen. Zeke is a little younger than my one cousin, Dale. Like most kids, he was in shock and didn't move from his mother's arms. He had his father's face, without all the mileage on it, which suggested that Harris was once a prince charming of a character before his wrestling career took off. Ellen met him in the 1980s when she was paid to wear a leotard and pretend to beat the crap out of other girls in leotards, sometimes in some type of slippery fluid. I'm glad I missed the 1980s sometimes, by the way. She and Harris hit it off and the rest, like the modern civilized world, is history. Ellen carried a few tattoos on her arms that my drug-induced happiness had me asking about. Sadly, I can't remember much more than my attempts to control my giggling. Given the mood of the bus... Laughter earned me some dirty looks and sneers from the sick, sad mass of people around me. Ellen guided me to sit back and told me about her ink. It was like a bedtime story, and I found myself lulled to sleep by stories of thorny vines and flowers, two dragons wrapped up in each other's wings, and a withered corpse with butterfly wings ascending to heaven by way of Ellen's left boob. The bus was quiet. Most of them saw something of what happened to my bus, watched the eaters swarm inside and slaughter everyone they found. I don't know if you could call it a sacrifice or just a lucky break for them that the herd focused on my bus and did not overrun the second the same way. This second bus had the same weak front-folding doors, the same shitty, sloppy armor plates, and no cattle scoot to move eaters out of the way. Fortunately, once we were over the hill, we were away from the herd and could speed up a little bit. We moved slow, but steady along a road littered with bodies. The bus kept a safe speed and tried to avoid hitting them, but we bounced and shook a few times as we reached a point near where a big rocket bomb had exploded. Minutes? Hell, maybe hours ago as far as I knew. I started my day in a dorm room with plans for the weekend. 
I ended my day on a bus surrounded by strangers, soldiers, and a sea of walking corpses. And there was my sergeant, standing over me with a canteen of water and a lost look on his face. He took a swig and offered some to me, then Ellen and Seek. I wanted to grab it and gulp it all down, but I was good. I let a bit trickle into my mouth before a large bump caused it to splash across my face. It was cold, but it washed some of the blood off. He reviewed Harris's handiwork and gave a thumbs up. You'll be picking your nose again soon, he promised with a forced smile. How's your leg? Can I get it cleaned up a little better? The drugs had done me a favor, but through the haze, I could feel a dull throbbing in my foot. My head and face ached, though I couldn't really feel my nose. I felt a little self-conscious, but my sergeant said something to the effect of, You clean up nice. Oh, my sergeant, if you only knew. The ringing in my ears was still pretty bad, so... I drifted away from my sergeant's attentions, and I looked for the stars outside the bus window. I wondered what happened to the moon. It would have been nice if someone held my hand, if only to reassure me I was alive. I didn't really know anything about infection. Would I know if I were? Would I know it if I died? Are the people these things once were still stuck inside their bodies? Do they seep out from their rotting faces? Feel the pain? My sergeant answered my thoughts with an abrupt, Yes, lieutenant, which I thought was odd considering I wasn't one. An airborne lieutenant started talking about strike zones and another gap band incoming. Soon I was alone again though my ankle felt a little better despite that ghostly feeling of a dead hand clamped to it. My sergeant, a medic, and the lieutenant in the back of the bus communicated with the driver up front. The strike that had landed nearby was aimed at a giant shipping warehouse along the interstate that had become a mobile surgical hospital and refugee camp. If I'd been picked up two or three hours earlier, that would have been my destination. It had been overrun by the herd. Airborne units scouting ahead of us reported we were heading into an even larger herd blanketing the open land running from the warehouse across the highway and down into a bowl of open farmland. The bomb or missile or whatever was guided to a tiny remote helicopter suspended over the farmer's field, which allowed the device to explode less than a hundred feet in the air over the largest concentration of eaters. What wasn't incinerated was pulped up by the blast wave or crushed in the debris of farm equipment, masonry, timber, and concrete. The road, more or less, remained intact. The scouts did not report in after the strike and did not meet us afterward. Fortunately, the only people who saw the hundreds of bodies flattened and burned were wearing night vision goggles. I just remember wood smoke, sulfur, and a hint 
bacon. Drifting away again, I saw Harris crawl up over the back of Ellen's seat and kiss her on the top of her head. He brushed his son's face with the back side of his hand and pulled his dirty straw hair from over his closed eyes. They'd been on the road a long while, since long before it forced them onto a bus. Ellen settled in and glanced over to check on me. She caught me looking because she looked a little like I'd caught her in a private moment. I felt my cheeks heat up and I closed my eyes. The next time I opened them, it was to the sound of the lieutenant wishing us all a good morning and welcoming us to some shithole town called Wishwell and the cold early fall morning at a site called H.G. World.